This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 30th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, here in the United States, we're continuing to enjoy the benefits of vaccination. And despite the fact that almost all restrictions have been lifted, the number of cases in this country continues to drop, along with hospitalizations and deaths. But in countries with limited access to vaccines, epidemics are still raging. For example, Brazil has already had more than half a million deaths, and the case rate continues to be high. It's become clear that vaccines are going to be the primary means to control COVID-19 in most of the world. Today, I'd like to talk about two articles we published that address how well vaccines work and how more vaccines might be made available around the world. Let's start with a story about the effectiveness of vaccines. It's clear that they're effective in the real world with rates of effectiveness that are similar to the efficacy rates that were found in the initial clinical trials. But most of what we know is based on symptomatic disease. One of the articles we published today expands on that by including asymptomatic infections. What did we learn? The study you're discussing, Steve, is from a group of U.S. hospitals coordinated by the CDC. They looked at vaccine effectiveness in healthcare workers. We've seen several similar observational studies performed in hospitals and in the general public. And as you said, these have had encouraging results. These largely used passive surveillance, which is essentially waiting for participants to present with symptoms. What's different about this study is that the investigators prospectively followed participants with active surveillance for symptoms and weekly PCR assays, whether or not participants had symptoms. Thus, they had the opportunity to capture mild disease that might not otherwise have shown up and even many completely asymptomatic infections. Altogether, the researchers included almost 4,000 individuals who had no prior evidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection. They followed them for 17 weeks and had very good adherence to screening. By the end of the trial, in early April, 80% of the participants had received at least one dose of vaccine. Almost all had received one of the mRNA vaccines. Most known exposures to COVID-19-infected individuals occurred among those who were not yet vaccinated. The investigators compared the rate of COVID-19 infection detected in those before and after vaccination. There were a number of observations. For example, the infection rate was similar in those with close contact with infected individuals and those with more limited contact. Most who developed symptoms did so within a day of having a positive swab. And the vast majority of infections occurred among those who were not vaccinated. Using the total number of days that participants were either vaccinated or unvaccinated, the investigators calculated that one week after the first vaccine dose, vaccination was 81% effective, and that rose to 91% after the second dose. Eric, I find these data reassuring in that they're very consistent with many other reports that have emerged, including the phase three efficacy trials with 90 plus percent efficacy. And now the effectiveness appears to be very similar, which is concordant with what we see in those communities that have had high level of vaccine uptake. However, I do find certain challenging aspects of these data to fully understand what they mean. For example, when one looks at the viral load assessment in the placebo group, one sees a lower level of viral load compared with what we've seen in other studies. Often the viral load is at six, seven logs in the placebo group, and here it's at three to four logs. We also see that the time trends become complex. And what I mean by that is this study went on from December through April. 
during this period of time, the infection force in the community was changing. And the investigators deal with this by having the rollout of the vaccine be part of its control because the time at risk of vaccinated and unvaccinated goes on concurrently, although more unvaccinated early and more vaccinated later. These types of issues are intrinsic to this kind of research. And the investigators took great pains in collecting the systematic data to allow us to interpret what we think they mean. But these kinds of issues make it difficult to do direct comparisons between data sets and between different vaccines and different communities. However, the consistency of the results with the other types of data that we're looking at with a high level of effectiveness, I find very reassuring that these vaccines are having the desired effect when they are broadly deployed. I think you make some very good points there, Lindsay. These are imperfect studies. They're essentially observational, even if they're prospective, and they don't have the power of an RCT to distinguish subtle effects and to arrive at really perfect numbers. These are estimates of effectiveness. The point about the viral loads is very interesting and um, not sure what that means. Remember, though, that these investigators were looking at swabs that were not symptomatically driven. And so it could be that infection was caught not at the peak of viral shedding, but at some random time after infection has occurred. And that may have given them the lower median values. I agree, Eric. I think that a strength of this kind of investigation is the weekly monitoring, irrespective of symptoms. So therefore, individuals doing self-swabs may be doing them at a time that are days into their infection rather than at the time of maximal symptoms, which is often how clinically driven swabs are done in studies that swab individuals that way, such as in the monoclonal antibody treatment trials and other studies that look at treating symptomatic illness. So I think that's a very important point. Another is we don't really know what the viral burden is in individuals who have subclinical infection. And these data may begin to allow us to understand that there may be more subclinical infection than we appreciate and that the viral loads are different in that setting in the majority of individuals. But without those types of natural history and community studies that have systematic assessment driven by a protocol rather than symptoms, we're not going to understand those data. But I think this type of study shed some insight into that, which is important for us to try to put into context, given the complexity of COVID transmission. Along with protecting against infection, vaccination seems to decrease the severity of disease. So how did that play out in this study? This study supports the idea that we've seen, as you mentioned in other studies, Steve, that vaccination not only protects against disease, but attenuates it. For example, almost two-thirds of those who were unvaccinated had fevers, while only a quarter of vaccinated participants were febrile after they became infected. In addition, the viral lobe detected on swabs was both lower and was detectable for a shorter period of time in those who were vaccinated. Now, there's the caveat that Lindsay brought up that the viral loads in general were lower in other studies. Nevertheless, it seems likely that shedding less virus for a shorter period of time means that vaccination would 
likely lead to less onward transmission, something that we discussed last week. I'd say that overall, this is very good news. Vaccination works even outside of the tightly controlled conditions of a clinical trial. It protects against infection, it protects against disease, and it protects against severity of disease. I agree, Eric. I think one of the most important observations is the attenuation of illness and very likely attenuation of clinical illness such as febrile illness likely mimics decrement in severe illness such as hospitalization and more significant complications. So I too find these data reassuring that in a broad rollout scenario, we see consistent findings with the efficacy trials. Today, we also hear more about another vaccine, NVX-CoV-2373, which is made by Novavax. We've previously published on this vaccine candidate. What did we already know about it? This vaccine is different from any of those currently in use. Right now, there are three categories of vaccines that have been authorized for use in humans. The mRNA vaccines, like the ones that we just discussed, adenovirus vectored vaccines, such as AD26-CoV-2S from Janssen, CHADOX-1 from AstraZeneca, and the Sputnik vaccine from the Gamaleya Institute in Russia. And then the chemically inactivated whole virus vaccines, such as those from Sinovac and Sinopharm in China. The Novavax vaccine is what is known as a subunit vaccine. This vaccine consists of the purified spike protein that's inserted into a nanoparticle to form a structure that looks similar to a virion, the intact virus. One of the advantages of this vaccine is that it's stable at refrigerator temperatures, which makes it very attractive for use in places without easy access to freezers. It's administered with an adjuvant and in early phase trials, it produced very good immune responses. We had previously published a phase two trial of this vaccine that was performed in South Africa. And we've discussed that one in earlier podcasts. That trial included more than 4,000 participants who were randomized to receive either vaccine or placebo. The group included a number of people who were older than 65 and more than 40% had comorbidities. In that trial, the vaccine showed about 50% efficacy. That's not perfect, but it's important to remember that almost everyone in that trial was infected with B1351, the beta virus, which has been the most difficult variant to neutralize in all of the vaccine studies. And that efficacy beat the efficacy of some of the authorized vaccines against beta in other clinical trials. So as you say, that was a phase two trial. Today, we published a phase three trial of the Novavax vaccine, the type of trial that's used to obtain regulatory approval. What did we learn in this new study? This was a large multi-site randomized controlled trial performed in the UK. Adults were randomized to receive two doses of the vaccine or placebo administered 21 days apart. The primary endpoint was symptomatic COVID-19 of any severity starting one week after the second dose. And the investigators also collected safety data. The analysis included more than 14,000 participants. Adverse events were similar to those seen in other studies, generally mild local and systemic symptoms that resolved within a few days of vaccination. There were 96 symptomatic infections in the placebo group and 10 in the vaccinated group starting a week after the second dose. That yielded a vaccine efficacy of almost 90%. By any measure, this is an excellent result. Remember though, that this vaccine is not yet authorized for use anywhere, so it's not yet available. So, Eric, I think these data are once again very encouraging that vaccines work and a different type of vaccine also works. 
a complexity as we've been struggling over the many months has been the emergence of variants. And as we saw in the CDC study, Epsilon was the primary variant of concern that was co-circulating. And in this report, 117 or alpha was a primary variant circulating. So as we look at different data sets, there are intrinsic differences in the community pressure of viral infection and of the circulating variants. However, we still see consistent results of meaningful activity in preventing clinical illness, though differential in vitro susceptibility, as we have seen from some of the reports looking at vaccine recipient sera against some of these variants. So much to learn in understanding these relationships, but overall encouraging data that the current vaccines that are being developed or in use maintain meaningful activity of some of the variants that have emerged. Lindsay, it's a reminder that we can't compare one study with another study right now because it's a moving target. The background rate of infection is different at different times and in different places. And as you say, there are different variants that are prevalent at different times in different places. And the ability of vaccines to produce an immune response that neutralizes any one of these variants is going to vary as well. So that being said, 90% is a very good number. And so this is extremely encouraging. We just don't know how it compares with anything else. So here in the United States, this Novavax vaccine is coming somewhat late to the game. Other vaccines are already widely available. So what do you see as the role for this new agent? I think this, again, highlights the complexity of research in the COVID space. Given the speed with which the virus spreads, is mutating, and we see variants of different levels of concern in terms of immune evasion. I think as we look at these different vaccines that are developed, the delivery system, as well as the insert, are important considerations, but also scalability and deliverability. And that becomes an increasing issue as we think about how to control global viral replication. We have to be able to scale the manufacturing and the ability to deliver to those who are at risk for infection to block infection. And I think another vaccine that demonstrates meaningful efficacy becomes important for us to consider in the global context. It's an excellent point, Lindsay. The manufacturer of vaccines has actually been as much the limiting factor over the last eight months as the development of new vaccines. There are technologies that are more easily scalable only because we already know how to scale them up. Making inactivated vaccines, growing viruses in culture and, and inactivating them is an old technology and it has to be adapted for every virus, but we kind of know how to do that. But mRNA, brand new. We had no idea how to scale that. We continue to get there, but not get there as fast as one might hope. Adenovirus, there have been adenovirus vaccines, but never at this sort of scale. And subunit vaccines, like the one that we are discussing from Novavax, are very particular in that there's a specific protein that's made and purified and inserted into these nanoparticles that have to be constructed. So how scalable that is and how much time it will take the company to learn how to do that at the scale of hundreds of millions of doses 
remains a question. So it's been amazing to see the new technologies that have come along. But because everything is new, we're still in a position of inventing every step along the way, not just the underlying technology to deliver vaccines, but how to make them, how to test them, how to keep them safe. It's the classic flying the airplane while building it that we're in just because of the pressure of getting these things out. I agree, Eric. We are incredibly fortunate with how well the science has played out to develop highly effective vaccines. However, we do need to make substantial investment in how to manufacture and deliver to scale. And scale is billions and billions of doses with a delivery system to all corners of the globe. Otherwise, we will not suppress viral replication. And this manufacturing capacity also has to be flexible enough to handle the emergence of variants and therefore the potential for vaccines that may vary in their sequences depending on the evolution of the virus. So we need to follow the science, but we need to ensure that we have the capacity to go to scale. And we really have to understand that scale is a global consideration. We're well into our vaccine response to this pandemic. What lessons do you see in terms of vaccines and vaccination for future pandemics? Well, I think there are a couple of lessons. One is that there's no reason not to think that there won't be a future pandemic. I'm using a double negative here, but I think that all of us in infectious disease have been worried about what's the next big thing to come along. The new technologies are, for the most part, better and faster than our old ways of making vaccines because they're much more systematic and they can be reduced to practice relatively quickly. That being said, it took us a fairly long time to have vaccines available for this pandemic. It was an amazing record starting from scratch, but we should be even faster the next time around. So that's going to mean some both capacity at the R&D level and some thinking about the regulatory pathway for vaccines under emergency situations like this one. We did pretty well. We could do better. And then the issue that we're just discussing, the manufacturing and scale up and distribution. I think a couple of lessons that we've learned and some other lessons that we haven't learned come out of this. One is that we can make things and we can make things relatively fast, but we could do that much faster, especially when you're talking about making things at a global scale. However, our distribution system is not good. We've focused in this epidemic on the US and Europe and other wealthy countries. And that has not only failed to save a lot of lives outside of those areas, but it also produces a continuing threat to everybody as the virus mutates in other places. So I think that we have to think about a more rational system that not only benefits everyone because more people are protected and more equitably protected, but also make sure that the world as a whole is protected against further transmission and further evolution of viral pandemics. Eric, I completely agree. And part of that is a surveillance system to identify when a new threat emerges. And then a consideration of rapid response to prevent a global pandemic. And that's very hard 
because at what point does something transition from a regional problem to a global threat? And that's a complicated scientific problem, but it is something we need to think about because it often is easier to prevent a problem earlier than later in its evolution. But it's very challenging to identify at what point does a pathogen have a real global threat. But that's another avenue of inquiry that we need to enhance. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.